Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Great show for you today. Our guest is managing partner of Hemisphere Ventures, an early stage VC firm focused on frontier technologies. She's also founder and COO of Explore, a space company dedicated to deep space exploration. In today's episode, we're rocketing into orbit and chatting space exploration. Our guest walks through her background as an entrepreneur and transitioning to investing with Hemisphere Ventures as she saw the emerging case for frontier technology grow. We talked through some interesting case studies of a few portfolio companies from Axiom Space, building the world's first commercial space station, to Planet IQ, Focusing on satellite-borne, state-of-the-art sensors to collect data to improve weather forecasting, space weather prediction, and climate analytics. We then jump into our own space company, Explore. We chat about space as a service and commercial capabilities, as well as development of their spacecraft, the X-Craft. We dive into milestones that include working with NASA on version 4.0 of the X-Craft, plan to travel to the solar gravity lens focal region as the fastest spacecraft ever built in human history. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Hemisphere Ventures and Explorers, Lisa Rich. Lisa, welcome to the show. Meb, thanks for having me. Great to be here. We're going to talk about all things space and aerospace today. I'm based in Los Angeles, but I have my Star Wars background. Where are you based? And tell us what your background is. I'm near Seattle. That's a hub in the space industry. Not everybody realizes. SpaceX has facilities here and Blue Origin is here and a lot of startups. So I actually grew up in an aerospace family. My old man was a Lockheed Martin guy. I was a Colorado native. Martin Marietta before that, my brother's Northrop, and then I've been here in LA. And I think SpaceX, I don't know if it's HQ is right down the road. My aerospace began and ended college freshman year when I started out in aerospace engineering and said, wait a minute, this has nothing to do with being an astronaut, everything to do with a enormous amount of math and physics. 
And so I did one year internship in aerospace and I said, that was it. I moved on to biotech, but it's been a really fun hobby and interest. So excited to talk to you about it today. When were you inoculated? Were you an aerospace nerd from childhood or was it later in life? You know, I think I just have the genes for it because I'm not an engineer myself, but my sister's an engineer and have that in the family. But if I go back to those Myers-Briggs tests from college, my results said that I would either be a gardener or an astronaut. And in effect, I am both because I delve into synthetic biology as well as space investing today. So those are my worlds. And oddly, that was my Myers-Briggs result from college. And I think it's actually come true. So who knows? I mean, you could find yourself in retirement one day, just cultivating your little plot on the moon or maybe Mars. Maybe they'll all come together. But we're going to talk about some of your current ventures here in a little bit. But I thought as a lead in, we'd probably wind back five, 10 years So really, as you started to get involved in the space injury, walk us forward. When did the hobby start to become a career? The hobby, right? (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I've always been a tech entrepreneur. My entire career, I've been building businesses and 20 years of building tech businesses, starting at the dawn of the internet with some of the first digital strategies that we put on with companies on the internet at the time when they didn't know the value of the internet interesting to go back that far. But tech entrepreneurship led to investment because the fruits of our labors wanted to invest that and understand who was out there and what they were doing. And maybe in 2014, that's when I was dipping my toe in the water to understand the venture world. It's an option beyond stocks, bonds, and equities. And you know, how do you get involved in that? What do you do to be a part of it? Similar to maybe my approach to other things in life, I tend to do a deep dive and get ground truth and build a network of people that were investing. So 2014 Hemisphere Ventures was born. I built that with my founding partner, Jeff Rich, who's my business partner and has been my life partner, my husband. And we looked at all the opportunities out there for early stage investments and said, you know, what are the big winners that we might want to be investing in? We were living at the time, not in the San Francisco community where you're surrounded like Silicon Valley culture. So we were really kind of farther apart from that mindset of the investments that would be the unicorns, you know, do they exist? And so we started looking across this landscape and saying, we can invest in what we know, but we can also look at deals and see patterns across the industries. And for us, the pattern that we were seeing was the emerging case for frontier technology. The idea that as there are synergies occurring as software and hardware meld or computational capabilities expand and you add AI and ML to robotics, all of these things are synergistic and they lead to compounded capabilities and outcomes. So that you could have a company that years ago, let's say synthetic biology, for example, do you have to build a whole lab to have a company that's synthetic biology? Or now you can rent lab space for whatever the dollars are per square foot to do experiments that could be the ground information that you need to build out a synthetic biology company. 
that has not happened. It's kind of the age we're living in now, and it's unique. So like that cost of starting a business has been driven down and driven down to the point where innovators can really hit the ground running by plugging in all sorts of efficiencies into their business models. So walk me forward timeline here. This would have been post-financial crisis. When did Hemisphere get its origins? 2014 is when we began investing and really investing across this broad spectrum of of sectors to get what we like to call our S&P 500 index fund of venture firms. And then those investments and knowledge of what was out there, like looking at We have tremendous deal flow, looking at all different platforms, what are the deals out there, but analyzing them to see what patterns made sense to us for future investing. So at the beginning, it was, let's look at the landscape and have a broad spectrum of investments, which of course is recommended for early stage investors. You should be looking at a large amount of deals to try and have some home runs in there. But separately, we began to concentrate our interest in frontier technology. And so by 2017, being active investors, we were asked to invite co-investors to join us in our deals. And so we were syndicating deals and our focus was all frontier technology, which we define as this swath between synthetic biology, robotics, drones and the space industry and everything in between. So kind of complex, but if you understand how all those dots connect, it's really the idea of finding the groundbreaking capabilities that a company has, the larger vision, companies that are looking at platforms and the team that can execute to achieve them, to actually achieve the vision. So there's a lot of moving parts to investing in companies that have these big visions. But as investors, I think we really learned how to assess a company's ability to really turn on the gas at an earlier stage to have a revenue opportunity so that they will have sustainability to survive long enough to fulfill that long-term vision. So we began investing at building relationships with accelerators in the U.S. and beyond to understand the unique opportunities and accelerators like the IndieBio family, SOS Ventures with Hacks and IndieBio and FoodX in New York and basically being friends with all of the people sourcing great deals and being mentors to these companies because I'm a multiple time founder. So I have a lot to share as a mentor. I had the time to do that in the past. I don't so much now, but we started talking to people that maybe you normally wouldn't find like accelerators in Minnesota, where you've got people that were the sons and daughters of farmers looking at the future for ag tech. You have to look under rocks, I think, to find all these unique businesses that are forming. And so since 2014, we've been building this network to find domain experts that can inform us of these new technologies. And then separately, those domain experts led to deal flow because smart people know smart people. They tend to be starting companies. We tend to learn about them in a wonderfully organic way. 
And that's how I came to you eventually was through the AngelList platform. I've tagged along in probably four or five different investments. And I think it'd be fun the listeners to hear sort of as a case study as how you think about an investing target, but also why they were attractive and kind of talk about maybe a couple names that you've invested in that you think are pretty good illustrations of what's interesting to you guys, as well as just fun companies that have a lot of potential too. Thank you. That is right. You have been following Hemisphere and I'm glad you have some knowledge of the deals we've done. And it's always good to have that exposure to what we're doing because it starts to maybe meld what we're about as you see each deal. So one of the ones that I think really characterizes our mindset that unicorn opportunity is Axiom Space. Axiom is building the world's first commercial space station. And when they approached us, you might think, well, who's going to do that? (laughs) Who's going to build a space station that today has a budget of $4 billion a year to maintain and 4,000 people to support it? That's crazy, right? It would sound crazy. But it's not crazy when you find out the founding team includes Mike Suffredini, who was the head of the International Space Station for over a decade. So he's a legend in the halls of NASA. This is a person that could have retired and instead said, there's an opportunity for a commercial space station. There needs to be a commercial space station because the ISS will be decommissioned. It's entering its end of life. And what if I'm the one to build that and lead that effort? And he is the one to lead that effort. And separately, his co-founder was the founder of SGT, which is responsible for all of the human spaceflight safety measures, astronaut training, et cetera, for the ISS. So I think a lot of people don't understand that NASA has a lot of contractors underneath it that support all the amazing things they do. And so SGT was one of those companies, the founder had sold it to KBR, so now it is a different entity. But to have your founding member of Axiom have a proficiency in human life support That's that extra slice of knowledge and expertise that is absolutely rare and required to take on a challenge of building out a space station that must be safe for human activities. What's the timeline on that, do you think? And also the interesting thing about some of these ideas that you're talking about that I've come to learn over the years when it comes to space and talking about it, one, it's not just rockets that a lot of people think about, and two, you just automatically have this assumption, like you mentioned, 4,000 people involved, $4 billion budget, that everything has to be a $100 billion company that has massive capital outlays. But that's not always the case. And it's not always the case if it is that it's all at once. Where are we in the process of having a commercial space station? Is this going to happen in one year, 10 years, 50 years? Everything has to follow a step-by-step process. It doesn't happen tomorrow. I think people forget SpaceX makes all the headlines and we're so proud of their launch with our human crew to the ISS, but they've been at this for 18 years. So you have to start somewhere. And for Axiom, they have the ability to train astronauts. They have the ability to fly them now on the SpaceX Dragon. 
So that's an early opportunity is to have astronauts flying to the ISS and hosting them on the ISS for early tourism opportunities and selling those tickets to the ISS. So they have an early revenue opportunity because it's not cheap to have a visit, to visit the space station for 10 days. I think the tickets are public. It's $55 million for that trip. And they have secured people that are going to go. It all has to start somewhere, as I said, to enable the reduction of prices in those tickets for later. The more people go, the more the opportunity will exist for hopefully the rest of us someday. But they have other capabilities that provide for early revenue because a lot of studies have to be done to allow for the building of the space station. And one of those things was, how do we build the space station on top of the existing space station? There's a port that's the final port on the space station where they can build the module on top of it. And when we invested, the question was, will they gain exclusive access and the exclusive right to that port? And so to some degree, that was a big, big, big risk on our part to say, we're gonna invest in this company before they have that win. But we felt that they were the only team just reasonably that would win it. I mean, we didn't know there was no guarantee in terms of their history with human safety for spaceflight. And so they did get that exclusive access. And now we're all breathing a big sigh of relief so that they can start that build. And there's a connector that they start with. And then from that connector, they build on top of it. And I forget the date that that's going to be installed. But prior to that, they will be doing astronaut training for the Crew Dragon. Yeah, it's just like Legos, right? It is. (laughs) All right, let's hear one or two more before we move on. Any other case studies you think are pretty cool? Well, we have a company that's Umbra Lab, and Umbra came to us with this idea of high-resolution SAR, which is, in general terms, it's space-based imagery, and SAR is a synthetic aperture radar. And this exists today. What's unique about it is the ability to see through the clouds. We have companies we've invested in, like Planet, that can take images of the Earth, and those are very different than SAR imagery, but the quality of the imagery can be orders of magnitude better than it is today with the type of SAR that Umbra has developed. And so when they came to us with this idea you know, of high-resolution imagery, we knew it was a powerful idea, but we had to go to our domain experts to say, can they make this happen? And one of the founders who was designing it came out of Orbital ATK. He had a stellar history himself. And so, you know, there's a lot of those clues and early indicators that give you a sense of one direction of the other. Can they execute? And what's very exciting is Umbra is going to launch this year. And so we'll be able to have that proof point, which is very exciting. That is exciting. And it's interesting to me to to see these companies go through the milestones. You mentioned biotech and some of the ideas there, and it's such a long, I mean, 10 year time horizon and and some of these as well, but also many of the early milestones are pretty amazing like that already, where you start seeing to get some real data points back that you can build upon, you know, or not. Many of us can remember back to 
the Challenger watching that in school. When this recent SpaceX was my son, I'm like, we're watching this on a 15 minute delay, by the way. <laughs> I'm not going to expose you to any potential outcomes, but he's all in on space now, loves rockets. All right, one more. Any more you want to talk about before we move on? Any other pretty cool case studies you're thinking about? Well, I think there's a good one that might lead into what I'm doing now with my space company. We invested in Planet IQ, and Planet IQ has a complicated device. It involves an advanced radio occultation capability, but you told me you have a lot of nerds in your audience, so this is great. Not a lot. It's all nerds. All nerds, my people. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. All right. So radio occultation is the ability to read precipitation data from the atmosphere. And they have a next-gen capability that effectively the high-quality data that they can bring back can give you the ability to have a seven-day weather forecast with one day's worth of data. And so if you think about Earth weather and the advanced warnings that we would love to have, perhaps in the case of Hurricane Katrina, even a few more hours of warning, we could have evacuated more people from the area and saved more lives. Weather has so many applications, you know, not just logistics and last mile delivery and human safety, but imagine the financial data that Cowan Financial or other firms would love to have early to inform how they can make better investments with real-time data on weather. Planet IQ is unique as well. They won a contract with NOAA, our National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, for a weather data purchase agreement. And so that is a, I think, groundbreaking move that's taking place in the transition from government services to commercial, where our government is looking to buy valuable services from the companies that can provide unique data. We love what Planet IQ is doing. They're going to be launching soon, just like our other companies. It's happening soon. So you can look for that story in the news. And we just wish them all the best with their efforts. The father of RO, by the way, is kind of the founder of the company. He was responsible for 13 of the 14 radio occultation satellites that exist today. So once again, you know, are you putting money into a company that can execute? We think so. You just reminded me, we were out in Joshua Tree recently, pretty good sky visibility. And I'm not sure if it was the Starlink satellite new setup, but there was a line of just satellites. It was like every five seconds that we were watching, they were going across the skies, but it was fun to see. It seems like a lot that's going on in this industry is sort of coming together right now and snowballing, where a lot of different parts of the puzzle are, are coming together. Aerospace has long been a boom-bust cycle, but it feels right now we're at a point of inflection, at least from the casual observer, that gets to be pretty exciting. Well, we are. There's a transition taking place as more companies build satellites and launch them. All the activity currently is in LEO, so it's all in low Earth orbit. And the activity there is kind of two things that they do. It's communications or observation. And so those capabilities, that's just an umbrella for hundreds of services and, and needs that we have in the imagery 
area, for example, I was mentioning, you know, we've got planet, we've got SAR capabilities. There's lots of hyperspectral imagery that you can get to inform the agriculture companies, how their crops are doing. And there's a lot of measurement and analysis that can take place and ultimately trickle down to companies that could benefit from this knowledge that they're gathering. Walk me forward. You guys recently, I don't know if the right description is you guys recently came out of stealth, but you decided, you know, I'm not done with this whole entrepreneurship thing. I'm interested in launching my own biz. Walk us through sort of the origin story. What was the inspiration? What was the idea? And then we can talk about all the fun stuff you guys are up to. Sure. Thank you. I think that once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur, obviously with Hemisphere, we made that a full-time effort for several years, looking really at every opportunity out there. But as we did that, we said, you know, we're ready to start our next company and we just have to figure out a great strategy. And so we were involved with different groups, space experts starting in 2014. Obviously, we had to build out our domain expert network because Hemisphere, while we have 200 companies in our portfolio, we have 18 investments in the space industry. We had a lot of expertise and working with those people, some of them, we got to be very close. And as we looked at founding a company, we had partners, you know, that, that we could work with to, to build a great team. So we started our company Explore in late 2017 and really spent, I would say, a good year honing the strategy for a company that would accelerate the opportunity for space science. And by that, I mean, we looked at the low Earth orbit marketplace. And what's happening there is a lot of activity, a lot of competition. Well, we don't want competition. We want to be the category creator. So we said, let's not focus on Earth necessarily. We could do Earth activities, but what if we took the tools and techniques that have worked in low Earth orbit and applied them beyond Earth orbit? So we have satellites in low Earth orbit that are orbiting at the space station, they're 254 miles from the Earth. They might go to 400 or 600 miles. And I say miles, by the way, because we're American, but of course, all of our scientists want me to use kilometers. But anyway, the ability to orbit 600 miles or so with a small sat, which is what LEO companies are doing, is Typically, we're looking at smaller spacecraft that do not have propulsion capabilities, and the focus is all Earth sensors, Earth imagery. So if we're not doing any of that, what if we said we took the techniques and technology beyond Earth orbit and built a spacecraft that's modular, iterative, can be produced at volume with the idea that we can provide low-cost access for deep space uh, missions. And so we're talking orders of magnitude, higher complexity and sophistication of a spacecraft that can go, in our case, this spacecraft behind me, can go 300 million miles into space. And what kind of instruments can we take with us from our customers to bring great science back? I mean, I imagine they're limitless and will develop over time. What's the original sort of business 
use cases for once you have that vehicle or craft? I think you call it the X-Craft. What do you use it for? Well, the X-Craft is designed as a commercial capability, meaning that we will have customers providing space as a service so that our customers can put their instruments on board and we will take them to their desired destination in space so that they don't have to think about building a spacecraft. They just can focus on their science and the output they hope to achieve from it. So it is a platform for a multi-mission capability, which is very unique. And one of the reasons it's low cost, a lower cost than prior missions, where prior missions to deep space are government missions that cost 500 million, a billion dollars and take 10 years in the making. Those missions are very specific and defined in terms of who's on board, what the instruments are, what the achievement of that mission is. And in our case, we're opening the door to anyone that wants to, universities, NGOs, sovereign space agencies, civilian space agencies, national space agencies. I mean, we have a private customer already that's coming aboard with his non-for-profit payload being represented. So if you are sharing the payload bay, that's a lower cost. And for sovereign agencies in particular, where they can put a lot of money behind a single mission that's a flagship mission, we're kind of debunking the idea that you have to put all your eggs in one basket because with a larger budget, we enable a programmatic capability so that you could have multiple missions when you fly with us. So tell me a little bit more about the craft and then we'll start to hear about some of these contracts and grants and things that got going on as particular ideas to use it for. How's it work? How much does something like this cost? How many of them can you put up there? What's the time frame? Who's building it? Give me all the good stuff. So a lot of space planning is the design process is complex. What we're doing is quite groundbreaking because we have a spacecraft designed to operate in these extreme environments at distances so far from the Earth. And so if we have customers that need to bring their information back, we have to make sure we can perform for them. So there's a lot of work involved in achieving these goals. But the long-term vision is that when you have the same design for deep space, it's almost like we're building a pickup truck. It's modular, it's iterative. You can slice it any which way to have it compartmentalized with different instruments. So that kind of versatility is very attractive to our customers and there are different needs that we can achieve for them. And a lot of these begin with studies for the mission. We're looking at these efficiencies that we can build into the process to fly our X-Craft to these far-off destinations and do it at a fraction of the cost of what government missions are today. And we're not competing with these missions. The government missions are bespoke. They are answer the questions in the decadals. You know, highly precise scientific instruments will always be needed and desirable and will cost a billion dollars. But what we've done is we've said, there's a lot of capability 
in instruments that have reduced in size that can fly aboard the X craft and we can bring high value information back for our customers without having to have a billion dollar cost. So it's really opening up the door for access to space. Is there a ballpark cost that if someone's listening, they say, you know what, I got the perfect project for you guys. And then when would we might see one of these up there? We're not able to talk about the costs. I think, you know, those are programs and things that we could discuss with our customers. But we're looking at 2022 for our first moon mission. And interestingly, we have a fun thing. If audience members are interested, we recently launched our public-facing website, which is called explorespace.com. And we're inviting everyone to send their name to the moon with us for free. We'll put their name on our data storage drive and it'll be in a secured place. And the legacy you can lead for yourselves or your family by sending your name to the moon, I think is kind of a fun thing. We're not the first to do it. Of course, NASA did this with the Mars rover, I think it was in 2020, and they gathered about 11 million names. So that's our minimal target. We want to send millions and millions of names with us on our first mission. So we hope folks will go to explore space and sign up. Is the moon project a just proof of concept or you guys have some actual projects or partners on that that you're trying to hit some milestones? You might have read about the Air Force mission that we have. We're studying the architecture to create a GPS-like architecture at the moon. So basically, GPS is our ability that we all have with our cell phone, where we know in terms of our navigation capabilities, everything we have is coming from satellites telling us where our location is on the Earth, and that's what GPS is today. But as you get farther away from Earth, GPS does not work. So when you're at those extreme destinations and you're heading into cislunar space, what we are going to develop and working with our Air Force Award is a cislunar architecture. So it will be a GPS-like system that can operate in cislunar space so that we can know where we are when we are at the moon and in that environment. It's exciting stuff. It's a whole new architecture. You guys have had a lot of announcements, a lot of potential projects. Tell me some more ideas or use cases that you can talk about that people can kind of see the possibilities of what may open up with a craft like this. Well, it is, as I said, it's modular and versatile, and it's designed to reduce the time to get to space. So that's actually a big need because you might hear about launch capability and we need more launch capability. And I don't know that we need more launch capability. I think it's more the integration problem that might exist, the ability to rapidly get to space is not so simple. So that's a problem. There are a lot of big architectural things that are inhibiting the growth of the space industry. So we like those hard problems. You had one, can you talk about the involving space weather? I think it was solar flares. Is that one? Sure. So we just announced yesterday that we won an award with NOAA to study solar observatories for advanced weather monitoring at the Earth-Sun 
Lagrange point, which is a million miles from Earth. The Lagrange point is this destination where you can have a spacecraft hovering and it allows you to consistently gather data for weather. So they need to have a next-gen precision weather instruments at L1 and Explorer can take them there and we're studying that mission to take the X-Craft a million miles from the Earth, which by the way, L1 is three times farther than the moon. And I want to talk about why solar is interesting or solar impacts. Yeah, let's hear it. Yeah. The early information that we have on space weather can help us understand what will happen with Earth weather, because obviously it's farther out and it's heading in our direction. So you've got solar flares coming from the sun. If you've ever read about sunspots, these are areas that are cooling on the sun and it indicates a higher level of solar activity where you can have geomagnetic storms generated as a result of this solar events. And you can have particles from the solar flares that are shooting at the earth and causing damage to our electric grid and other terrible things that it can do. We've had events in the past, going back to 1869, we had a Carrington event where at that time, the advanced technology on the earth was telecommunications. And the Carrington event basically wiped out all telecommunications on the earth. So if we had a solar event, and we almost did, I think 2012 was the year, it nearly missed us, all these impacts hitting the earth. But an event like that, Lloyd's of London estimated, would cause $2.6 trillion in damages. It would just fry our infrastructure and possibly lead to outages that would last four to 10 years. So can you imagine the instability of our society if something like that happened? It's kind of unfathomable. So the earlier we can learn about potential impacts, the better. There's actually an article I'm going to, I think I'm putting it on my LinkedIn today, that the Smithsonian wrote about. In 1972, there were landmines put in the ocean during the Vietnam War. And they were spontaneously detonating, and they didn't know why. And they traced it back and they studied what was the reason for the detonations, and it was solar impacts. Okay. How do they possibly narrow that down? <laughs> There's a whole analysis. Because we were going back to say, well, what events have occurred that have been these near misses or these solar impacts that have, have damaged infrastructure? And there's a whole history. It's fascinating. And by the way, the images of the sun, these heliophysics, all the analysis that they do, they're beautiful images. So if you like, you know, space imagery, that's something to check out. And so I assume the end customer for that has almost got to be governmental or sovereign in some way or a multi-country composite. Would that be correct? Yeah. So Explore is engaging with large agencies as customers. And as an investor, if you had told me five years ago, like there's this company that would have government as a customer, would you want to invest? I would have said no. <laughs> you know, like is the government customer going to pay you? Or are you actually going to get contracts? And the thing is that Landsat changed all of this. 
the conversion from government to commercial opened up a whole new marketplace. And we have agencies that are trying to enable commercial. And there is certainly a bit of a space race happening right now where government agencies want to enable innovative companies to get those concepts through to fruition. So it's a great time for space companies and our world is in such a state of disarray right now, yet for space, we're pretty happy because there's a lot of work to be done and there's a lot of support behind it. It's been challenging watching all the amazing news that's been coming out of space, but also I saw this week one of the longest and deepest dives ever in the ocean all these interesting and then transposing on pandemics and social strife. I was smiling as you were discussing the solar flare one, because I feel like that's the plot of so many science fiction or Bond movies of the past 20 years. It's like the electromagnetic pulse is going to take out London. And that's like every like one's worst nightmare. It's going to disrupt the stock market and the economy and everything else. You know, here we have this pandemic going on right now, and to think that there's something that could be even worse, it's crazy, but we have been nearly impacted, and so advance warning is the answer, and thankfully, you know, our government wants to invest in that and think about protecting all of us. <laughs> Don't jinx us, 2020 is not over No, yet. <laughs> I know. Can we just take this year off the calendar? I'm telling you. Well, I don't want to say that because it's actually a great year for Explore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about what's your all's headcount? Where are you guys based? What does the next decade look like for you guys? Is it planned on being mostly funded by venture capital? Is it grants? Is it revenue? Is it a combination of all of them? We are unusual because as investors, we're, we're looking at every dollar and we're looking at how can we make the most of every possible efficiency to be a sustainable business. And so with that mindset, we are proving our value to investors by getting all of these wins and non-dilutive funding where they see that we're matching their dollars with non-dilutive dollars. And they like that. And there's more to come. So we do see opportunities with investors that are the broad-minded investor that can look at big ideas those are more unique, by the way, because most investors today, I think they have their hands tied behind their back a little bit, especially space investors that have previously invested. They've been in space 1.0 companies. And so, and I have too. I mean, the earlier movers in commercial space, we've had our losses and we've been licking our wounds over those. And there are other space 1.0 companies that have had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars invested that have yet to see the proof points. So I think that there is a bit of a challenge there for people that have invested in space before they aren't ready to take the next dive or they don't know when. And so we're busy proving out just how real we are with our agencies that we're, we have as customers now, you know, the Air Force, NOAA, NASA, we're racking up those customers. And that I think is showing the credibility of the team and the capability and that investors should look for that in early stage companies always. Yeah, there's definitely some good logos you want on board. Let's walk forward five or 10 years. What does Explore look like then? What sort of 
you can't even say moonshot because the normal stuff you guys are doing is moonshot almost anyway. So five, 10 years from now, what does the business look like? What would you, if you had to predict, what would you see the state of affairs of Explore in 2025, 2030? I think it's a great question. So much relies on where we will be. And also, I don't know that I can fully answer that because we're still very stealthy about our goals. Everyone can read our website. They can read what we do. We are looking for payload customers. We're looking for principal investigators that have scientific missions that want to come on board and join us. And that's the state of affairs today. But I can't tell you what's in the magic eight ball. You'll have to come back on the podcast. We'll probably be doing it holographically in five or 10 years. I'm not sure. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It won't be Zoom, it'll be something else. What's the state of affairs with your neighbor in Seattle, Bezos? You don't hear as much about his space activities as the rest of them. I'm glad you bring that up because I visited their facility and I wish everyone could. It's big ideas and you start to see the future of space becoming more of a reality. His vision of millions of people living and working in space He's really serious about it, and it starts to come alive for you when you start actually, like if you sit inside of the New Shepard capsule, which I've had the privilege of doing, you're in this Barca lounge chair, there are maybe five or six of them in a circle, and you're in this cozy lounger looking out this enormous window. And to be honest, I walked in there and I thought, okay, this is going to be the experience where you're going to go up and you're going to see the curvature of the earth and you're going to come back down. And would I want to do that? Looking at it, I thought, well, that sounds interesting. But when I sat in the chair and I looked out the window, I thought, heck, yes, I want to do this. Sign me up. I mean, there's just something that happens. I can't quite explain it, but I think it's just this inspirational ability to expand our human footprint and say, I've been there, I've done that in my lifetime, and he's going to be providing that access, just like Virgin Galactic, I think is an exciting opportunity too. As you've gone from entrepreneur to investor, back to entrepreneur and done it in a industry that, you know, when I think back to my limited experience in the aerospace world, granted, it was working for a gigantic company with, I think, over 200,000 employees now. I think really my only input was, was being on the softball team. But I think a lot of people think that anytime you insert the government it's kind of like a weird barbell where startups and entrepreneurship is kind of the opposite of working with these huge organizations of government, but rightfully so, so much has to go on with, with safety and rules and protocol. Long-winded intro to the question of what have been some of the most challenging parts of starting Explore? Anything that comes to mind has been way harder or way easier than you expected to date? That's a great question. I think that on the investor side, the hard part about being an early stage space company is the knowledge that investors have about space at all. If they understand space, they understand satellites and Earth observation and communications. But then when you're talking about going deeper into space, missions to the moon, Mars, Venus, and beyond, I think the eyes glaze over and people don't understand that that could ever be a marketplace. And so explaining 
that path of wanting to accelerate scientific knowledge for humanity. I've had investors that in multiple conversations still don't understand that we are not sending humans to Venus. So I think there's definitely a communication the essential element of a space company needs to be clear communication and ongoing communication with investors because there is education that's needed. We do need to have more of the ability to align what we're doing with some already experiences that people can equate to, which is why we like to say that the Explore X craft is a pickup truck. Okay, you know, you can get that. Okay, we're we're basically looking at the Ford Model T for space. Okay, now I understand where you're coming from. So ways to bring it home for people, I think, is part of the challenge. And then, as I mentioned, the barriers of investors that have lost money or are waiting to make money, not ready to invest again yet, but think it's interesting. So for founding a company and running a company, we knew from the start that we're not a teaching hospital, as we like to say. We have to have people that are supremely knowledgeable and have advanced skills. And so putting together an exceptional team, it's not just credibility, it's you have to execute. I'm a founder of the company. This was our money we put into it. I'm not going to waste it. So we're going to have to have people that can really make it happen. And so companies that start with more wild-eyed ideas that don't have a solid business plan, that aren't looking at what the dollars are required, that have larger CapEx needs, or can't figure out a way to be smaller CapEx, I think are not going to survive. So those are a lot of things. Maybe that's some advice to some startups that I'm sharing there. Also, the complexity of a space company involves really knowing all of your stakeholders and building relationships with stakeholders, with all the different customers that you might have, with building partnerships. It's a lot of work, actually. (laughs) Do you think the continued trend of private commercial endeavors will continue? Or do you think as some of these particularly large governments, and I'm thinking China, India, develop, that it becomes a return to sovereigns being the big players in this? Or is it both? Well, the governments are the bigger budget, so they have a reason to be more involved. The space agencies are getting much more active. At last count, I think we had 65 emerging space agencies with budgets of 10 million or more. So that's exciting to see. And from the sovereigns that we've met with, even from countries like the Philippines, the idea that a small country like the Philippines, that they could find a way to get to space is really empowering, I think, to uplift these smaller nations. So that will be, I think, the opportunities for more complex space programs. But for consumers, like the businesses getting involved in space, you've got companies like maybe Planet that would be the first to be moving in that direction. I think the applications will continue to evolve and more businesses that can understand how they can take advantage of capabilities and imagery and or communications capabilities from space will be the ones that get an edge over their competitors long term. 
in Space Force. We haven't even talked about Space Force. Oh, did you watch the show? No, it got kind of universally panned, so I was a little nervous to turn it on. What's your review? Sadly, I think that it's what I read is that they have the trademark for Space Force and that Netflix has it, and it's now contested for the government (laughs) to use it, which sounds a little crazy because the show is not Steve Carell's best. You've saved yourselves. I'm sorry to publicly pan it, but I think people should save their time. You got any favorites while we're on the topic? Any sci-fi shows, books, movies that come to mind as being on your shelf as the favorites? We watch so many documentaries. That's our thing. So I don't know specifically what, because we're always watching documentaries. You got any favorites there? I have a fun thing for people that have kids, if I can mention it. We sponsored a game called, and you should get this too, you should get this, Extronaut 2.0. Dante Loretta, who's the principal investigator on the OSIRIS-REx mission, has this game called Extronaut 2.0. And it allows you to have, it's a board game, and you're doing a real space mission. So it mirrors real life in terms of you've got your first stage, your second stage, your boosters. Are you going to Alpha Centauri? Are you going on a mission to the moon? What's your Delta V? That type of thing. So it's actually like an easy way for kids to learn about space. And what's kind of funny and fun is that Explore sponsored XCraft 2.0. And so we actually have a card in the game And it's a very valuable card because it is immune to government shutdowns. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) (laughs) So just putting in a plug for Extronaut. I think they had a Kickstarter. It might have ended already, but I think they might have the game on Amazon or something. And also I would mention for people that are new to the space industry and want to learn maybe who the players are and, Who's in this small community? Robert Jacobson wrote the book, Space is Open for Business. I think he's launched it already. I think it's available. I had reviewed it for him. And he really kind of created this compendium of who invests in it, who are the sci-fi people that have, and their perspective on space, how sci-fi becomes reality. It's a neat landscape. I was actually looking for that book because I saw you guys had done a video together and I think it's coming out as we speak. So we're recording this in mid-late June. So I'm looking forward to reading it. I was smiling as you were talking about that game because you're like talking about a real mission. And for some reason, the first thing that came to mind was the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., which I could, as a child, just would spend hours and days at. But astronaut ice cream. That's all I could remember from being a boy, just getting that kind of terrible, but very exciting treat as a kid, having astronaut ice cream, the the freeze-dried. I don't know if you ever had it, but... Yeah. So Mike Mullane, who was an astronaut, I forget what year, Mike Mullane wrote a book about his outrageous experiences as an astronaut, I guess. He has children's books too. One of them is called Do Your Ears Pop in Space? And so he was talking about his missions on a podcast the other week and what it's like to be in space and what they ate in space and how the bathroom works in space. That always comes up. And I think people are just interested. You know, they want to know why is this environment so unique? And I love talking about that too, because 
of the research that will happen in space and does happen in space. But that microgravity environment is so exciting for R&D because you can grow things that are in a 3D environment. We can't do that on Earth. So how does food behave in those little Capri Sun packages that they send up there and they poke them to get liquid out of them? I mean, we need to definitely advance the idea of food in space. I have companies that I work with with Hemisphere that are in cell ag. And so they're doing, you know, fish from stem cells, pork from stem cells. There's a lot of opportunities for those applications. And first, they have to solve the problem of doing stem cells so that we can have food on Earth. But I like them to think broader about what they can do in the future, because astronauts could probably use some better food up there. You know, it came to mind as you're talking about that. One of my favorite, not books, it's a short story, was by Asimov, and it's called The Last Question. Almost no one I've ever talked to has read it. It's really short. You can find it online for free. I'm not going to spoil it, but that's a great one to check out because it ties in what we're talking about here is one of the things that unifies why people all around the world and all ages get so excited about this industry is because of some of the very fundamental questions of what are we all doing here? Before I end on our final questions, is there anything about Explorer we didn't talk about that you think we skipped over or missed that you think we shouldn't skip out on? I think we fully talked about the Air Force and NOAA. We have a NASA thing we're doing, which is already planning our version 4.0 of the X-Craft. Even though we're focused on 2.0, we're planning 4.0 to go to the solar gravity lens focus region and build basically the fastest spacecraft that's ever been built in human history. So, you know, we're doing some really exciting things. You can't skate over that. What was that entail? What is it? Propulsion based or is it some sort of... <laughs> Solar. It's based on the power of the sun, advanced solar sails. And actually, that's kind of a fun thing I've been watching. There's a documentary called About Origami. And so, you know, all of these spacecraft that go into space, they have to be compact and fit into a small the rocket that launches them or what have you. And so I think looking at for us, you know, solar sails that have been done before, but it's a neat technology. If people are interested in learning about solar sails, there are some cool documentaries while you're Netflixing that you might want to check out. But it's the ability to, in our case, build a spacecraft that can go five to eight astronomical units per year at the very beginning to get out to the solar gravity lens focus region, which is many light years away. And what's interesting about these big ideas that we're working on is that if we want that future capability of being able to have technology, robots, what have you, in multiple destinations in space, we need to get there faster. And so right now we have fuel that we carry with us. And when that fuel expires, your mission is over. Hemisphere invested in OrbitFab, for example, which is a refueling capability that can happen on orbit. So 
the idea of gas stations in space is interesting. But getting back to SGLF, we're talking about using the power of the sun to propel ourselves so that you don't have that limited resource of fuel that you're relying on. And we know of other companies that are working on nuclear capabilities to have, you know, unlimited power in space. So lots of problems that need to be solved, but we like to think 10 steps ahead. And that's fun because it helps us advance what we're doing today as we think about what we can do tomorrow. It's exciting. It's fun to hear. I was smiling as you were talking about the origami because my son and I just, he's three. There's a paper airplane book called, it's written by the guy who had the longest flying paper airplane, but it's got a bunch of different designs that are, in my opinion, not particularly well described. And I was the kid when I was building cars and planes that always had like, 30 things left over at the end. So my attention to detail, maybe not the best, but some of these were such complicated origami to take one piece of paper and turn it into this crazy airplane. A fun exercise, but a little bit maddening too. It really is like the engineering mindset that the math involved in origami. And so the documentary that we were watching is called Between the Folds. And it's just interesting to see what these engineers mathematicians with these artists really end up doing and the challenges that they find origami presents and what they can do. I love the paper arts and I love how it speaks to engineering. But boy, if you put one of those books in front of me with all the numbers on how you fold it and how you do it, I cannot follow that for the (laughs) life of me. I was actually looking on Etsy. They have books you can buy. And my husband said, you'll never do it. And I said, I know, because what I need is like the YouTube person to like literally fold it and say, do this and do that. Because the most I've done is I've made little penguins in origami and it was in a class. So (laughs) I'm the same way. The video is the right way to do it. The origami master class would probably be right. We'll add the documentary, the show notes listeners, if you want to check it out. We always ask investors that we have on the podcast, what's been your most memorable investment? It could be good. It could be bad. It could be anything in between, but anything that's got a searing brand on your brain, anything come to mind? I think, you know, there are companies we've been involved in more closely, like Axiom that I mentioned, and that from an experiential point of view is number one in my mind, because in order to invest in Axiom, we were in Houston at Zesty Johnson, we were at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, and we were looking at all the safety testing and understanding how astronauts go to space. I have personally tried on a spacesuit, you know, so I think the experiential side of that is very cool. They're my number one. That's cool. Well, I'm cheering for it. Of course, everything matters. All the investments are, they're all our little kids and we care about them all. I gave a talk last year to, I think it's JPL, I'm blanking on it, in LA on investing. But the only reason I agreed to do it because they said they'd come let me take a tour for the day. <laughs> so I was like a little kid just wandering around, checking it out. So, all right, people want to follow what you're up to. Where do they go? How do they follow on? What's the best places to find you? Probably LinkedIn is the best place I tend to post there. We have Explore as well, where we're sharing details on our wins and posts are kind of fun stuff that we post. I will be mentioning that solar flare story on LinkedIn. I think it might be posted today or later today. If it's not on my personal post, it'll be on the Explore LinkedIn page. So please follow us. 
Awesome. Lisa, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Mav. Happy to be here. Thanks again. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.